Welcome to the Engineering Career Conversations. I'm Krista Downey, Director of the Engineering Career Center at Cornell University. And I'm Tracy Nathans-Kelly, Director of the Engineering Communications Program. We are excited to bring you this forum where we will host lively conversations that we hope will inspire you. We are happy to have Debbie Madden today. She's a Cornell engineering graduate, ORI 1996, and she is a serial tech entrepreneur, the founder and chairwoman of Stride Consulting, an advisor at Docker Inc., author of Hire Women, and two-time Inc. 500 CEO. She is a mother, wife, and breast cancer survivor. Debbie has built and scaled five tech companies from the ground up, and she's been CEO of three of them. Debbie is a sought-after speaker and writer, having appeared in Harvard Business Review, Inc. Magazine, Forbes, CNBC, Huffington Post, Varney & Co. TV, and more. Debbie, we're so glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Debbie, it's clear you've accomplished a lot in your career. Can you please take a few minutes and tell us more about your path and what draws you to new opportunities? Uh, sure. Uh, so as you mentioned, um, I am a serial tech entrepreneur, and I, I call myself the accidental entrepreneur because I never set out to be. When I was at Cornell, even in my first job, um, I worked for one of the biggest companies in the world. I never thought I'd be where I am today. I fell into entrepreneurship accidentally. I got a, I got a taste of it. I worked for a very large company that was Kraft Foods, and that is now Mondelez. And oddly, it was actually using my ORIE degree. It was operations research. It was industrial engineering. It was exactly what I thought I was going to do with my career. And three months in, I was like, this isn't for me. And I didn't know why, but I knew it wasn't for me. And then ever since then, every other job I've had, I've either created a business or worked for a very small startup. And, and so I think actually knowing what the other like side of the coin was actually helped me really be at peace with this idea of entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is scary. It's messy. It stinks. It's exciting. It's, it's, it's so many things all at once. And I think I would have never had the uh, confidence in myself. Hadn't I worked for a large company first? So that was one thing I knew for me, what, what not good looked like for me, um, even before I knew what good looked like. And then from then on, literally since 1999, I think, or no, 1997, so it's been a while, I've been really drawn to this idea that um, the scarier, the better, uh, the the more unknown, the better, the more complex the road ahead, the better, and um, really kind of found that I am at my best professional self when I am solving problems that I myself don't believe I can solve. Not that aren't solvable, but that I, I, I wake up and I go, I shouldn't be here. Why am I doing this? Who's trusting me to do this? And for some reason, that gives me energy and that gives me uh, a drive and I succeed in that environment. Um, so we can talk more about that, but it took me um, a while to learn that that was true. I love that. And so how do you translate that for the students as they think about next steps and the possibility of someday becoming an entrepreneur? Over the last, especially decade, there has been a lot of, um, you know, sexiness built around this idea of entrepreneurship. So I think a lot of people 
say, oh, well, of course I'm going to do that. Of course I'm going to try that. But then we realize that number one, you're not born knowing how to start businesses. And number two, I think 99.6% of startups fail. So it's, it, it's not the thing that most people want to do nor should do. And I think, you know, what I realized early in my career and what I mentor young engineering and other graduates on is the fact of um, every opportunity you have in your life, in your career, you know, I find is best viewed from no matter whether I think I'm in the right spot, whether it's perfect, absorb the good, the bad, the unknown, the stuff you like about it and the stuff you don't like about it and just really uh, lean into the experience of the path, right? Because that I think a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm going to be in entrepreneurship, so I don't really need to know how to become a software engineer. Oh, I'm going to start a business, so I don't need to know how to run, you know, the back office of a business. And my advice is, you know, take every, every team you work on, every boss you work for, whether it's good or bad, appreciate the learning. To this day, and I graduated, you know, decades ago, to this day, one of my most valuable lessons that I use in my career actually came from Cornell. I was in a course where we had to break into teams of four and we had a semester long project where we had to um, start a business. I think it was the best I ever did in a class in my four years at Cornell. And it was because the team was a high performing team and the four of us just we, we gelled, we divided and conquered. We, we, we showed up for each other when we said we were gonna show up. We pulled our weight, we asked for help. We did all of the things that today I measure a good team on. At the time, I, like, I didn't know why, why, why are we doing so well in this class? Why is this so easy? When none of us have any knowledge or experience <laughs> of what we're doing. And the reason why I knew that is because then the next semester I was paired with a different team and we did terribly. And then I was like, wait a second, what was special about that very first team that I was on? And no one told us to behave that way. Uh, we, we got lucky. And to this day, I actually keep in touch with one of those folks on that team. And we reminisce about how amazingly wonderful that opportunity was at Cornell Engineering, where we got that chance to be on a team starting a pretend business. An immediate follow-up. As I think about this, I have a lot of teams in the classes I'm with this semester right here at Cornell. I loved your words about absorbing everything that's going on around you. So you identified that you had a really good running team, you gelled, everything was done fairly, and then you had a team that wasn't quite so great. Well, now that you, you know, apparently are the master of all teams because it sounds like you just enjoy them so much. Can you highlight for us what makes a really compatible team member? Um, there, There's lots of things. And, and actually, um, you know, there's so much written about the, the power of a good team. Um, I have actually talked about this um, in lectures that I've given over the years because any entrepreneur knows that VCs, private equity, any anyone that's going to finance your crazy idea, they don't really care about the idea. They care about the team, right? Because it really is the best teams that win, not the best ideas. And you can look at any industry. You can look at any social media giant, any retail giant, and you can look at their team. And it's not just the head of the team. It is the team. The best teams truly do win time and time again. And Google 
actually paid tons of money. I don't know how much millions to, to actually answer this question over years. And uh, psychological um, safety was a big, big factor. Do I feel that I can show up and, and speak my mind and be myself, my real self, my warts and all self, and be a respected member of this team when I have a dissenting opinion? Is that incorporated? Does the team do things like disagreeing commit, which is critically important, which means, listen, I do not agree with you. And I'm going to commit to the path forward truly until we find that that is no longer the best path, right? So it's this idea that you, teams cannot disagree and commit if they don't trust each other, if they don't feel safe. And, and how you get that team, we talk a lot about diversity, which is a whole thing that we could do a, no, a whole nother podcast on. But it's not true that having a diverse team means a good team. It's also not true that a homogenous team makes a bad team. You could have a team of 10 that look like me, right? Middle-aged white women from New York. And we could be a great team or we could be a bad team, right? You could have a diverse team, different races, different ethnicities, different values. Could be a bad team, could be a good team. That that key is that, that you have to feel safe to show up as yourself. Dissenting opinions have to be heard so that you can disagree and commit and move forward or else you just you know we've all been on teams whether it be a sports team or a project team for cornell or a family even is it you know a different type of a team where you either have the same conversation over and over and over the same disagreements over and over and over even in relationships <laughs> right um or you, you feel like, hey, we're really good at solving problems. We're really good at moving forward. And that is, you know, you can be a tech team. You could be any type of team in the world. Um, any it could be, again, a two-person relationship, a family, a, a team for a school project, anything. Those are what I've observed. And that is what I've read. And I do a lot of reading because that's how you learn. I loved that nugget that you had right in the middle of there, um, and I wanted to amplify when you said that it, it's not the idea, that it's the team, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, I, I always teach using that same uh, Google study, mm -hmm. about yeah, <laughs> the team it's, outcomes. It's, There's yeah. two things, be nice and listen to each other. That was really what they came up with, and they admit that they wanted, they expected much different outcomes than that. And, you know, I think the thing that people misunderstand because they sometimes don't take the time to ask is the, the outcomes of, of this Google study and of, of all, you know, successful uh, entrepreneurs and successful business folks is we don't talk about these things because it's a nice to have nor a fluffy thing. It's, it's actually tied to outcomes. It's tied to measurable dollars and cents and success and and whether you measure that by happiness, by health, by money, by status, regardless of how you measure your own success and your team's success, having a high functioning team is a measurable outcome. It's not just a fluffy. That's that's a really important thing. You're singing my song. <laughs> You're singing my song. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I agree about the high-functioning teams, for sure. So then thinking about your work, what's the broader vision you're working toward in your career? What type of impact are you hoping to make? I, I ask myself that often, and um, two things. 
No, number one, as a as a human being, I have a very strong personal value driven compass that, that that wants to answer that question to say, I think it's important that I do right by everyone that I interact with, whether or not any other human being will ever find out about the conversation that I'm having, right? So, and how this turns out is if I'm having a conversation with one of my employees and they ask for a raise, I, I tell this this as an example all the time. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to give them more money that is then going to be viewed as unfairly to any other employee should they find out one day, regardless of whether I think they may or may not find out. And so I'm not going to cut corners, whether that be, again, like bringing it back to, you know, being a student, whether that be uh, treating a classmate unfairly, giving someone an unfair grade, um, giving someone an unfair advantage, uh, even if you think it's going to stay between the two of you, right? So the impact I want to have is that virtuous circle of treating people as if every single conversation I'm having is going to wind up on the front page of the New York Times. And and whether I think it's, it's going to be a difficult conversation when the whole world finds out about it, it's still defensible, right? So that's impact number one is like really use that because if you show up, in private like that, then I think that will set the tone and model the way for others, right? And this is how I interact with my children, with my husband, with my friends, everybody. Um, and then from a business perspective, this ties into my business, Stride Consulting. We build software products. We create custom uh, uh, web applications, mobile applications for the world's biggest brands. So we build the technology for Disney, for Peloton, for Spotify, for IBM, for NBC Universal, all these wonderful brands. But why we do it is because we want we, we do want to have a positive impact through engineering better systems. And that again, it starts with people. It starts with having the conversations one on one, but then it ends with. Um, the big, broad impact, we are a national organization. The bigger we get, the, the longer we stay in business, the more, the more tech teams we touch. This idea of building software to, to unleash the power of the companies that are having positive impact on the world, right? So we want to be kind of like that tool inside that gives you time back, those cycles back to have those personal conversations to put product into the world quicker, more efficiently, to have better outcomes. So it's all it's all kind of connected in this weird way because you know the more and more technology is at the center of the world, whether it's through AI or chat GBT or machine learning or software engineering, you can use those skill sets for good or for bad. There are people using them, you know, to drive bad outcomes, right? Like like misinformation and I think today's students are so critically important because they're the ones that are learning the future of all this technology and these toolings. If I run an engineering company today um, that impacts IBM, Disney, clean energy, education, healthcare, mental health, all these tools and, and things that we touch, how can I use efficient software to make those things have bigger reach? Right. So that's that's what excites me. And um, that's why I stay in technology. 
I love that aspect of it's, you know, sometimes a behind the scenes approach. You're having impact in so many ways and touching people's lives in ways that might not be obvious, but um, it's a huge impact. So I'm curious then to know who have been some of the most important partners and collaborators over the course of your career? When I uh, am asked that question, I my, my immediate response is it's not that there has been one massive influential collaborator, but rather the world is my tutor. There was a movie and I can't remember the name of it about this woman that was studying for a spelling bee and she was was really stressed out because she didn't have all the advantages that all the others had. She didn't have money or resources. And she found this, this tutor and the tutor said like, the whole world's your tutor. Every single person that you interact with can help you achieve this goal. And um, that that is how I've lived my life. So every conversation I have, every person I interact with, whether it be someone 20 years my senior or 20 years my junior, I really, I go through life taking these mental notes. It's funny, like I, I tend to um, instantly and unconsciously put people into two buckets, either I have, I can learn from that person, or I want to spend not so much time with this person because they put toxic energy into the world and, and they don't, they're not open and honest and vulnerable and has nothing to do with their intelligence. It has to do with their, their attitude. And most people fall into the former. So for me, it's been those small moments, those small those comments that people have made throughout my life. And sometimes it's with people that I barely know that say something and you, and I say, Oh, that that's, I'm at a crossroads and you just help put me on the right path. And, and I, and I will also tell you that um, any, if anyone listening doesn't have a mentor in their lives, you know, that is not someone that you need to pay. That is not someone that needs to have more experience than you. Um, ideally, it's someone that's different from you in some way. Please, you know, if there's one thing you take away, please go find one. And oftentimes, um, the best way to find a mentor is to become one yourself. And it could be going out to lunch with someone, helping someone study for finals, helping someone get that first job, helping someone study for an exam. It doesn't have to be a big lift. And so it's it's the mentors in my life that have have been the most important collaborators in my career and in and in my personal life. So we're always talking with students about mentorship and the importance of it. That's fantastic. What what would you say has been the most significant challenge you've faced in your work? You had asked me this question in advance of today and I read it and I'm going to tell you what first popped into my mind because then I tried to zoom out and answer it a different way and then I kept coming back to this answer. And so you mentioned at the top of this conversation that I'm a breast cancer survivor. And so when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, Stride, my business, I'd only just started the company and it it wasn't my first business I'd started, but it, it was only a year in. And it was very small, a dozen people or less. And here I am facing a year long treatment, right? And I had two young kids and 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 I was about to go through chemo. And I was like, oh boy, this is gonna be, this is gonna be tough. And the interesting thing about what I'm telling you, which which I realized while I was going through it during that year, which was seven years ago now. And and by the way, I'm fully cured, I'm fully healthy. So happy ending. Um, (laughs) The hardest part was not 
my own treatment because maybe it's my entrepreneurial, like, let's go get it brain that I was like, okay, we have a plan. Let's go. We got this. And I, my doctors told me this is highly curable. You're good. So I was, I was never, that was not the challenge. The challenge was actually, I'm, you know, a type person, right? And I'm an entrepreneur and I like to, to like, like stand on a wall and tell people, we got this, follow me, I'm going to protect you. And now I needed the help. I needed to let go. I needed to delegate. So the, the, the single hardest thing I've done in my career is actually learning how to truly and, and holistically delegate everything all at once with no opportunity to really take back. <laughs> that was that was the hardest thing, right? That my team was junior, my my kids were young, my company was brand new. And I had to be like, all right, you know, executives at my my tiny little business that I didn't know if it was gonna make it through, you gotta run this company now. They were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we can't do it. I was like, you can do it. And to my kids, they were in like grade school. I said, you guys have to get yourself up in the morning. You have to make lunch for yourself. You have to do your own homework. You know, they were like, wait, what? We can't do that. And I was like, I'm going to be right here, but I'm going to be not doing those things for a while. And that, so I had to completely let go of everything all at once. That was huge. And seven years later, one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my entire life was being faced with that non-negotiable. If I wanted all of the things, this was my path to it. It was the scariest thing, scarier than starting my companies, scarier than going through chemo, scarier than having kids, scarier than all of that was. And, and this is like, I, I've thought about this as not just an off the cuff statement, but, but truly letting go um, in order to, to, to embrace that fear and achieve what I really, in my heart wanted to do, impossible, terrifying, and the coolest thing, because I saw people grow in a way that I wasn't enabling them to grow by controlling more than I need. They were like, my kids were ready. My team was ready. They had, they did it. They did it. They did it. And then that was the coolest thing. Uh, it made me a better person for it. So that was, that was, it was really great and really hard. That's amazing. That that's an inspiring story. I'm glad that you are healthy. Thank and, you. <laughs> and how great what what great role modeling for your children, for your team, anybody else who was in your life at the time. I want to say one more thing for anyone that that has this in their life or is, or is maybe like ha, like has someone that they think, you know, they need to go to when maybe they're ready to expand their wings cuz you know, when you're in college and you're away from home, you are like, okay, wait a second. I'm kind of a grown up now. I have to kind of fend for myself now. I, I distinctly remember the morning that I regained the strength to make uh, breakfast for my children. And I, and I remember it clearly because I went up into the kitchen and I went to do it for them, but they were already doing it. And so I said, wait a second, I am not going to make breakfast for my kids this morning just because I can. I'm not going to because they don't need me to do that for them anymore. But yet I was ready to just kind of jump right back in. And I literally sat down, I had a cup of coffee and I sat next to them and they didn't ask me. They didn't even need, they were happy to talk to me. It was so cool. Like, I think if I would have just jumped right back in and made the breakfast, we would have gone back to old habits. 
And it was just a really cool moment where, you know, you know, especially, you know, you're in college, a lot's changing. You're thinking about your future. You're growing into who you are as an adult. Sometimes you have it in you, even when you don't realize. So that was really cool. We talk a lot on this campus about leadership and, and followership that goes with it. But I think that this is really an extraordinary kind of flavor of leadership. Uh, to lead is to sometimes let yeah. go and give other people the chance to shine, to empower themselves, learn those skills. Even if they're kids cooking breakfast or it's your whole team trying to run this business that, you know, your leadership moment was saying, I'm going to trust all right. of you. And it's funny because I had read all the books. I had, I thought if you would have asked me seven years ago, am I good at delegating? I would have been like, absolutely. I'm um, not so much. I wasn't, I wasn't. Um, so it's, it's also like, you know, that relationship between what are those internal things that you can control uh, combined with your external realities? Like, 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 where do you fit within the world that influences how you show up? And, and sometimes, you know, that saying, like, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Like, sometimes those external forces are opportunities, right? Not always, not always. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're just bad things, right? Not everything's an opportunity, but sometimes you can really take advantage of external things that you can't control. We, uh, one of the things that we are asking folks that we're interviewing is to kind of go into a time machine, all of these thoughts about leadership and taking your chance and finding your place and trusting yourself. But time machine, uh, we're asking them, what would you advise when they were sophomores? So that's just on the cusp here at Cornell of declaring your major, right? And being a little bit more official about um, those intentions that you have going forward. It's probably hard. It's hard for me to remember back when I was a sophomore, but given that general flavor, what do you think might be some good advice for those students? Yeah, no, I really love this question and I appreciate you asking it because when I was a sophomore at Cornell, I do have a very vivid memory of the way I felt in relation to my peers. And I was a smart, successful high school student, like everyone at Cornell Engineering, right? And then, you know, I got to Cornell and I instantly felt lesser than, right? I felt, and it, it wasn't because of anything anyone said to me. I just, you know, I looked around and I instantly felt, I definitely had a little bit of imposter syndrome. There was definitely not that many women. There was a, it was a very male dominated school at the time. And I know Cornell Engineering has done a lot of work and, and made a lot of progress and inequities of many kinds. Um, and even back then in the nineties, they did as well. But the reality was in my classroom, um, I looked around and I said, well, I don't look like everybody else here, right? Most of my peers are men. That gave me a little discomfort. And then further, a lot of folks in my, my classes were smarter. They were a lot smarter than I was. And they put in a lot of work, you know, studying all hours of night on the weekends and really understood a lot of the material. And again, right at that sophomore year is when it, I think, was the hardest. It was because it was before we really broke out into majors and we were in those big giant classrooms with hundreds of people or dozens of people. And I felt, um, I felt scared. I felt alone because none of my friends, uh, like the folks that I live with and the folks that I spend time with, like none of those folks were in engineering. So I was, um, you know, everyone else was writing essays. I was doing problem sets, you know, it was a very, 
And this is going to sound funny, but in 1992, I think I was the only one I knew that had a computer. Like everybody else did. I, I feel like, that deeply. Yeah. Like I had to go to the Cornell <laughs> Engineering Computer Lab to do all of my work. So I couldn't even like all my friends were at like the library, like writing. And I was like, well, I'm, I got to go to the computer lab. That's where my work is. And so that felt lonely. Right. So I just felt different um, everywhere I looked. Right. I couldn't bring the computer lab to the library. It didn't exist back then. I couldn't make myself into different, you know, race or gender. I couldn't do that. And so looking back now, I know that, you know, what makes me happy, what makes me successful was, is my grit, is my humor and is my empathy, right? It's not the color of my skin or, or, you know, who my friends are, my, even, you know, my intelligence, my favorite, you know, peer groups are, are the ones that I'm constantly learning from and feeling like I'm getting from the team and giving to the team. And you have to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you in order to grow. And so, you know, uh, you know, if you're listening and you're at Cornell, whether whatever, whether you're a sophomore, a freshman, sophomore, junior, or senior, it's, you know, find the courage to have that confidence, even if it's in small pockets, even if it's a little bit, even if you're scared, even if you don't have it all figured out, like, I still don't have it all figured out. And I'm in my 40s. <laughs> That's okay. And there is a lot of support. And there is a lot of, um, you have so much time. That's it, time so much so much time and there's so many paths where you can be happy and you can be successful there is no one right answer right so really kind of show up as it was as a good human being and, and it goes back to that team like do what you say you're going to do show up for people the way you tell them you're going to show up and and it's okay to be unsure it's okay to be scared it's okay to feel like you're not the, the smartest person in a room like if i was never i was never I'm not even close to the smartest in the room. And it's been okay. And it's been more than okay. It's been great. It's been so great. Um, and the other thing, the last thing is to this day, my very best friends, uh, I met at Cornell. I met my husband at Cornell. My sister went to Cornell. She met her husband at Cornell. So, and all four of us, like we met our spouses our sophomore year. So, it was a big year for all of us. And so um, <laughs> not to scare anyone, but sophomore year at Cornell was a big year. <laughs> nice. Very I nice. Wow. No pressure. No pressure. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we're going to wrap it up with a speed round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Debbie, what do you do to relax, have fun, and re-energize? So I love to exercise. I love to lift weights. One of my favorite things to do is playing strategy board games. We play with my family. Anyone listening out there that likes board games, El Dorado is my current favorite. Those are some <laughs> of the most energetic ways I do to relax, things I do to relax. Yeah. And what's one place you go for information to stay current? So interestingly, podcasts. Um, I listen to a lot yeah. of podcasts of all different types, current on business, fitness, mental health, Anything from uh, Freakonomics to The Daily to The Hidden Brain. I, I make sure to listen to podcasts across discipline. 
as I'm exercising, as I'm walking, as I'm having my morning coffee. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love podcasts. If you were not doing this work now, what would you be doing? And which is closest to what you dreamed of when you were a child? When I was a kid, I never had the like, I'm going to be X. I never had that. But I always thought that I would work with children. So I always loved kids, like little kids. And so my parents always thought I was going to become a doctor, a pediatrician, which I think that time has passed. <laughs> but um, if, if I wasn't running a tech company, I would probably be doing something to mentor kids because a lot of what I'm talking about really starts with um, helping kids feel confident in their place in the world. And um, that has a lot to do with their environment and, and where they feel safe to fail. And so I think it, I think one day I probably will spend more time with that in some shape or form. I don't know how yet, but still to this day, it does give me joy just just working with with children from all over and all different types of kids to truly give them that. Hey, listen, I like again, go, I, I was I felt different parts of my life. You might not. You might. And either way, it's OK. And, and and what gives you joy and where do you feel safe? So maybe maybe one day we never know. We'll see. Excellent. I have no doubt you will figure out exactly the right way to go <laughs> with that dream. I, I love it. I love it. We appreciate having you here today. Um, my gears are spinning in several different ways right now. And uh, I just really find your outlook about how to work with other people and showing up authentically and fully for your teams. It, it, it's just so wonderful, inspirational, something that you can really build with that should be a cornerstone yes absolutely and anyone can do it and i just want to say you know i have had and always will have a, a real uh, love and appreciation for everything that cornell gave me in my life and uh, and the memories some of the fondest memories uh problem sets and all so i loved every <laughs> looking back um, and so thank you for having me it's been a real honor it's been an honor for us thank you so much Thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, please follow, rate, and review on your favorite platform. Join us for the next episode where we will be celebrating excellence and innovation among engineers whose impact contributes to a healthier, more equitable, and more sustainable world. <laughs>